Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference, and together we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, the focus is not on clicker training or training horses in general, but it's on what we as horse people can do to make a difference in climate change. And of course, right now, the focus is not on climate change, it's on the coronavirus. But in many ways, the coronavirus is just a dress rehearsal for uh, some of the changes we may be faced with down the road. And today I have uh, a guest from Australia, Sarah Nichols. And Sarah, this conversation started really because of the coronavirus, because I can't travel the way I normally can. I had to cancel all of my normal clinics and I've been shifting to clinics on the internet, seeing, it, seeing if you can give a horse training clinic via the internet. And so far the answer is yes. And then I was experimenting with different time zones. And so you and several other people from Australia, uh, your ears perked forward when I said that. And, they, and you said, oh, will you do a clinic for us? And I'm still dragging my feet going, I'm not sure I can manage the time zone. But in your email to me, when you were introducing yourself, you talked about your day job and my ears perked forward. So would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell everyone what your day job is? Your passion is horses and you are a horse trainer and instructor, but you also have a day job that takes you out of that world a little bit or expands that world sure. in a different direction. Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> which, do you know how I should tell you this story, Alex, actually, is that when I finished high school, I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be and what I wanted to study. So I took a year off after high school and um, I actually did a number of things. I, for a while there, I thought I might be a dairy farmer and I went and I milked cows and that sort of was good, but I decided I didn't want to be a dairy farmer and I worked in retail and I was teaching horse riding the whole way through. And I did childcare as well, I did some childcare. Then I worked in an office for a wine company for a while. And um, in that year, I, Actually, it's funny, I was working on the dairy farm at the time and I that got kicked in the eye by a heifer. Um, yes, I, being a horse person, I saw wire dragging from a herd of uh, cattle and thought I should go and try and resolve this issue because, you know, wire horses, yes, like yes. bad, evil, bad. So, <clears throat> yeah, being a horse person, I tried to find where this wire went to and in the course of finding this wire wrapped around the leg of this heifer, <gasps> which had done no damage no obvious damage it kicked me as I removed the wire that was the the gratitude I got from that that heifer yes um and so uh off I went to the local hospital thankfully my eye was okay but the next morning I was heading back to Melbourne to go to uh RMIT it's a university so the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology they had the university open day so I drove back to Melbourne looking like I'd been in a bar fight and come off second best with a black eye and some scrapes and yes. uh, um, I've walked off a dairy farm so I probably smelt a bit farmy I would <laughs> imagine at the time <laughs> despite best efforts and um, I was looking for I was quite interested at that time in studying I think it was a maybe a wildlife conservation course and it was a two-year diploma 
but I approached a woman standing on the corner of two major streets opposite the university and she was holding a large bunch of blue and white balloons, this massive bunch of balloons to make herself very obvious. And I said, oh, hello, I'm looking for the wildlife conservation course. She says, oh, you must mean environment. You go into this building just across the road here and the information is up on level four. Sure. Okay. So I dutifully follow the instructions and um, I got up to this floor and looked around. I literally, I remember walking in the door and just kind of looking at, you know, the displays and I thought, well, this isn't what I came for, but this is exactly what I came for. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So I spoke to the staff there and so the course is social science environment at RMIT. It's since changed its name to something else. So I spent some time talking to the staff there and then I toddled off down and had a look at the wildlife conservation course and decided I actually wasn't that keen on it after all. <laughs> and um, I was really, now I had my heart set on this social science environment course because I got sent to the wrong room by a woman holding a bunch of balloons. So that was a three-year degree and um, I studied that and I've been working as a practicing social scientist in the environment field ever since, which is my day job. Huh. So while I'm passionate about horses, I'm also passionate about the environment. Yes. What does, what the social sciences, what does that mean as it relates to the environment? So, and it's probably a little different. There's a, there's a guy I work with and he's more of a researcher, whereas I've been practicing. And so the work very much intersects, but it's really about, funnily enough, and ironically, uh, it's about behavior, human behavior and the motivation of people to do things. There's a lot of uh, component about research in there. So researching shifts in behavior. So uh, making sure we do quality evaluation of programs that we implement and looking at how do we implement effective programs to change behavior uh, through either tar direct targeting or policy interventions. It's really varied. The, the people that I studied with in my year have gone off in very, very diverse directions. So it's a really sort of open uh, platform to then take your career in one of multiple ways. How have you used it? So mine's been uh, predominantly, I guess, in the direct intervention space. So I initially worked quite a lot in the waste industry. In, my, in our third year, we had to do a, a practical placement with an organisation. And I did one for an education provider that did uh, excursions or incursions for primary school aged children. So children between sort of five and 12 years old. And I did my placement there and uh, they liked me so much and I liked it so much that I stayed on. So I was running programs with little kids and we were talking about worms and compost and recycling and mini beasts in the water and uh, making it really fun for small people to start to appreciate the little world around them. Yeah. And then I sort of not through once uh, to go into the waste industry, but I ended up working in waste sort of education and engagement for a long time, which is that waste is a great space. It's a growing, you know, for an, from an employment perspective, it's, it's something that's not stopping anytime soon. And it's a growing industry and it's an industry that has money. I'm now in the biodiversity space. I sort of shifted. I was a bit worried for a while there. I was being pigeonholed in waste and litter. And so I took an opportunity to sort of shift into a broader environmental perspective and now I'm in biodiversity. But unfortunately, biodiversity doesn't necessarily get the funding that waste does. And, and I guess I should say that biodiversity is, is the diverse range of plant and animal species that 
make up our world. So a lot of people don't even know what biodiversity is. I probably should explain that we have a diverse biome of biosphere. So how does the permaculture come into all of this? So when, so we moved to the property that we live on in northeast Victoria, which I can tell you about uh, a bit, um, but we moved up here four and a half years ago. And when we knew that we were moving, I went off and did my permaculture design course. And then once we'd gotten up here, my other half, Ben, did his as well uh, through a different group closer to closer to this part of the world I did mine closer to Melbourne so a lot of the conversation was quite specific to the um, the climatic conditions where I studied mine uh, which are very different to where we live so Ben Ben studied his up here with um, a lovely bloke called David Arnold who's been doing permaculture since I think the mid-90s on his property and the part of the draw card for that course that I encouraged Ben to do was that David Holmgren was coming to teach for one of the weekends. And so David Holmgren is one of the, along with Bill Mollison is one of the, the sort of founders of this permaculture concept. Okay. So, so it's pretty cool when you get to hear from him. Yes. So, so that takes us right to the heart of what I wanted to ask you about. So uh, when you started, when you emailed me and you were talking about permaculture, that's one of the reasons that my ears perked up because for me, the, the purpose of the Horses for Future podcast is to learn. I mean, my focus has been on horse training, clicker training. I've really kept a fairly tight and narrow beam. I do read, you know, outside of that niche because I think you have to. When you want to expand a field, you bring ideas from the outside. So it's important to look outside of your narrow focus. But there's a... there's there's been a lot going on over the past uh, chunk of years, and you can't learn about everything and know about everything. And so I kept encountering permaculture. And it's one of those things I'm curious about because I keep encountering it in connection to the regenerative agriculture and so on. So what is it? You are, you are going to be my fast track, short course in the understanding <laughs> permaculture. Little did you know. So No pressure. No pressure. No, no pressure at all. So tell me where, where did, how did it start? What is it? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's start with how did. Oh, so. So my understanding, and I, you know, some of the permaculture people who are more expert than me in this may contact me afterwards and say, Sarah, you got that so wrong. Um, but I'll, right. I'll do my best. Because yes. um, I'm, I'm probably a bit, uh, I'm, quite, I'm a bit like you, Alex. I'm a generalist and I try and keep a bit, well, I've, I've probably tried to keep a bit across a lot of things. So my detailed knowledge of any one thing isn't necessarily yeah. too deep. Um, often, often that makes the person who's a really good, filter for at least getting our feet wet in understanding what permaculture is. So that's really what this True. is about, is just getting our feet wet because you've done a certain amount of filtering and you've also uh, seen, okay, this is how I take this information and apply it. What do I do with this information? And of course, you're going to be combining it with other things that you know. And so what will come out is your own unique interpretation of the application of, of, of these concepts. That's true with the clicker training as well. You're, you're an experienced horse person. 
you know, if I plunk clicker training in your lap, you don't suddenly take an eraser out and erase all of your horse training background. You, you bring some of that into the clicker training and what emerges is something that will show definitely the influence of the people you learn from, but it will have your own unique stamp to it. And that's true for everyone and that's as it should be. So in your understanding of permaculture, what got you interested? What is it? So what got me interested was a book on my parents' bookshelf that was there since I can remember. And it was a book by Bill Mollison, who was one of the founders of the permaculture concept. So it it came out of Tasmania and um, a a guy called Bill Mollison, I think he was a uni lecturer at the time. He had a student called David Holmgren and um, David started to do some some research and they came up with this concept together. Unfortunately, Bill Mollison passed away a year or two ago and David Holmgren now lives here in Victoria. He has an amazing permaculture property here. It's really, permaculture is a set of design principles that's centred on whole systems thinking. So it really tries to look at everything. It's, it's, it's funny because there's so parallels with, with horse keeping and, you know, keeping horses well. It's that looking at everything as being interconnected and, and I guess leveraging that interconnectedness to have a, um, a successful way of managing a property. And it uses principles from fields like regenerative agriculture, rewilding and community resilience. So permaculture goes into, you know, community design and um, financial things as well as just sort of land management. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. And there's uh, lots of resources and information around on it, but uh, no one in the podcast can hear, but there's some great books by David Holmgren. Um, this is one of the original ones, which is called Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability by David Holmgren. And his most recent book that they've been doing a lot of information on is called Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. And it is a giant tomb of uh, information and this this one's really based around suburbia but uh, you know a great lot of information that's still relevant regardless of where you are so that, in the that's, world that's helping uh, those of us who are house owners with our suburban lawn and so on to, to not have that perfect uh, green lawn of monoculture uh, over fertilized yep. yeah so and, and looking at you know permaculture isn't a concept restricted to those of us with land either. So you can be doing permaculture in a suburban backyard setting. So this book really explores how you can do that effectively. And there's some great case studies in the book of where people have done it super well. So yes, taking that uh, very manicured lawn into uh, something a little bit more productive uh, in, in many ways. So yeah, it doesn't have to be done by people on that. So that's the great thing about permaculture. You can be applying it if you have... 1,000 acres, or if you have one acre, or half an acre, or a quarter of an acre, you can use the principles, the design principles, as they apply to your to your space and with your um, with your animals. So I know someone who is buying a, a new house this summer. So as they move into the new house, and they're looking at the the property, and I don't actually know how much land is connected to this house. What would be some of the things that they would be looking at or considering? How do you begin? Well, there's lots of things you can start with, but one of the things is mapping mapping the path of the sun. So where does the sun go in relation to your property? 
and what which parts of your garden in summer and winter are going to get the sun. This applies as much for if they were wanting to explore having solar panels on the roof to find out if that's even viable. So really understanding where they are in, in the landscape and the influence of the seasons, um, the sun movement and then the seasons on, on their landscape and their property. You know, they can be doing things like looking at ways they can retrofit the house to make it more sustainable and using less energy and making it more you know, insulated, looking at how much rainfall they have. So, you know, could they maybe have water tanks put on the house that can then water a garden down the track, but they can start collecting water straight up. And one of the things about uh, permaculture design is that they really look at designing the land beyond the house into zones. So looking at what's uh, practical and accessible for people and understanding that, you know, it's great if you have a vegetable garden and I know Alex, you've been working on, on yes. yours down at yes. the new, yes. new space. And for a lot of people who aren't uh, maybe as motivated as you and I might be, going distance to the vegetable patch isn't great. So you want to have a vegetable patch that's pretty close to the back door of the house. Uh, so that's really easy to tend to and that when the weather is less than pleasant, it's really quick to duck outside and grab that lettuce or grab right. that parsley or whatever it is from the garden. So they look at dividing the, the garden into, um, or the, the property into different zones. And um, so really, I guess, part of being in that new property would for those people be understanding where they go on the property. What path do they take? Um, how do they get from the driveway to the front door? When they go out the back door, do they turn left or do they turn right? Do they go straight? To then look at how you design something that's going to be workable for those for that those people rather than you know saying oh it's great we'll have a compost bin but we'll put it down in that back corner of the yard and yes. nobody ever goes there goes ever there. again right right yeah right yeah well yeah. it can be advantageous yes to have the compost <laughs> bin where nobody goes but probably not yeah. the uh not the pot of tomatoes um we want that a little bit closer definitely yeah Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it was when I did my, my permaculture course, one of the interesting things that kept coming up was when you mentioned, uh, when I would mention horses and permaculture in the same sentence, it was generally followed by a great deal of eyeball rolling. <laughs> because horses are, you know, horses don't always have a great reputation to non horse people. And the, you know, in permaculture, because it's a whole systems thinking instead of uh, about designing everything to, to be interconnected and work efficiently together as a whole system. Horses are uh, a bit of an anomaly to most people because they're not a they're not a food producing animal. Right. And so the function that the horse plays for people is not like a, a chicken or maybe a cow or a goat or a sheep, you know, other types of livestock. So horses, we keep them generally for pleasure. They're not a, a money making or food producing endeavor. It's a luxury item really. Yes. And so, yeah, there's, you know, in the permaculture people that I've met, there's quite a bit of eyeball rolling when you mention horses. And so, you know, which is, which is interesting. And I think part of that is that there haven't been a lot of people incorporate permaculture systems with horses to date. So the, the people who've been teaching permaculture for a long time haven't seen a lot of good examples. It's much like, um, again, 
I see the parallel with positive reinforcement training, where in some parts of the world, there aren't a lot of good examples. So when you mention using food with horses, yes. cue eyeball rolling yes. and, oh, it's going to make your horse pushy and muggy and it's going to make it bite. And so the yeah. same when you mention horses and permaculture, oh, they're going to trash the land and you can't yes, keep them sustainably definitely. because most of what people have seen is that, you know, we, we know what impact horses can have on land when it's poorly managed. So there's not a lot of great examples. So I was kind of at great pains in that course. I remember to be, um, you know, flagging Jane and Stuart Meyer's work and saying it can be done. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it can be done well. Yes. Um, and there's a, yeah. And there's a, there's a woman in New South Wales here in Australia and her, she changed her business name, but she was doing a lot of work around equine permaculture um, and I went to a talk that she gave down in Victoria a few years ago. So, you know, it's it's starting, but it's it's fairly new. So I think you know, there's a there's a lot of opportunity we have to sort of uh, demonstrate how the permaculture and the systems thinking can happen, incorporating horses. Um, and I certainly was pushing that in the course. And when we had to do our property design part of the I guess the final assignment is that you worked in groups and you came up with a, a permaculture design for a property yeah. and we used one of our um, course mates properties and uh, much to my amusement they had horses too <laughs> and so <laughs> it was designing you know how do you design a property effectively for horses so you know I kind of went back to Jane and Stuart Meyer's work and um, you know we incorporated a lot of that in our design suggestions for the for this property so I think it can be done. It's just um, not a lot of horse people have embraced it to date. And so there's not a lot of, um, or there might be examples, but we're not seeing them. So Right, right. It certainly is the case that horses can absolutely trash land if you're not careful in how you manage them. I was at a this spring before that, before the coronavirus closed everything down. We were was at a farm in this area, big lesson barn. And I was just appalled because they had a lot of room, but oh my goodness, the fields, the, there was nothing but mud, nothing but mud. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the, the, the way the horses were managed had just trashed what was beautiful land. And you can't really say anything, not, not in that context, but we do have a lot to learn and we can do better. You know, that there are definitely, for every example like that, there are examples where people have really done a thoughtful job in terms of how they're managing their pastures. But there also has to be, because I, I see them, the horses that are kept, there, the fields, they were in a rotation. But when they're out, they're in such tiny little postage stamps yeah. that from yeah. an enrichment point of view, that's no good. No. Yeah. I, yeah, and I think there's a really interesting tension that you've just hit on, Alex, that uh, I've seen too about that. And I, uh, I remember doing the, the permaculture design course and they were talking about cell grazing like they do with cattle. And like, oh, well, you could cell graze horses. No, no. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> no, you can't. I said, because horses are flight animals and they need to run when they feel danger. It, you know, there might be impending danger. So you put them in cell grazing and depending on the temperament of the horse, they're likely to go through the fence, over the fence, under the fence, whatever their yes. mode yes. of um, flight is. I said, no, no, you, you know, there's a, there's a real tension there between having big enough paddocks for the horses to express their natural character 
in and having them small enough to be effective in, in some level of cell grazing. So there's a real, it's a really interesting tension, I think, with horses uh, in, in that way. Yes. Yeah, you, it, it's you're so right. And we've, we have 40 acres here where we live. There's probably about, I reckon, 30 acres of that that we graze. So not, not the whole lot. And when we moved here, the property had seven, did I count seven paddocks, but they ran them as twos or threes because of their, they only had water access in, I think, four of those seven paddocks. And so we've now, we're now up to 13 paddocks, but that's wow. over 30 acres. So the paddocks are still really big. They can still get up ahead of steam, you know, if they um, need to run around either because they're worried about something or it's cold and they just want to frolic and uh, yeah. warm themselves up a bit. But we've, and, and I, you know, in 30 acres, that's 13 paddocks. And I don't know that, oh, I think we have scoped actually perhaps make it 14 paddocks. I think I figured out how we could make a 14th one. But they're still, you know, they're still really big horse paddocks by a lot of people's standards. So, yeah, I think that's, that's and, one of and, the challenges. And, and for how many horses? Oh, sorry, that helps too. Yeah. Um, so we have, yeah, we have five horses here running in two herds. So we have two in together and then the other three are in together. Usually it's a little different at the moment because we've got somebody who's injured. So we have the two herds. The challenge that we have here on our property, it was part of the appeal in buying buying the property, but it's also a challenge, is that we have a lot of native pasture, a lot of native to Australia and to this area grasses, which is much better for horses because they're a lot, uh, a lot lower sugar than what you get in a lot of places in Victoria where there's, there's just a lot of rye and so, clover. It's, it's so been I'm going to interrupt you again because sure. of course, to me, Australia is, is unknown and exotic and to you, it's your, <laughs> it's your backyard. So yeah. where are you geographically? If you sort of, if we have a map of Australia, where are you on that map? And then what is, what is your area like? Sure. So we are in, Victoria, the state of Victoria. So Australia, uh, for Australia, that is sort of the bottom right-hand corner, if you will, of Australia. Um, The only thing below us is Tasmania, and you access Tasmania via a a boat or a plane. So we are sort of the bottom right-hand corner of Australia besides Tasmania. And in that bottom right-hand corner of, of Australia in Victoria, we are classed as being in northeast Victoria. So yeah, and our capital city is Melbourne, so a lot of people would be familiar with, with yes. Melbourne, which okay. is, is down at Port Phillip Bay. So we are about two and a half, three hours drive northeast from Melbourne. And what is your climate like then? What's in general? So for us here, yeah, so we're quite different to Melbourne. So we, our property is located on the, the western side and on the edge of the Great Dividing Range. So the Great Dividing Range is a, Australia's most substantial range and it stretches sort of through Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria and it sort of divides the coast and coastal areas from the inland flat, flat area, okay. if you will. Very different climate on both sides of that range. And our capital cities of Brisbane in Queensland and Sydney in New South Wales and Melbourne in Victoria are all on the coastal side of that range. So most of the population or a large part of the population on the east coast of Australia is along the coast, is, is right along the coast. And we're on the west side of that range. So for us, it's a lot drier than on the east side of the range. So I think our rainfall is just under 700 millimetres per year. We get 
down. So we're at win in winter at the moment, our coldest temperatures are probably overnight, maybe minus four overnight. Um, and then in summer, we get up to, I think the hottest we've had is about 47 degrees. Yeah. Last and of course that's so, Celsius for those of us, you know, because we're Fahrenheit. So um, yes. people will have to do the translations, but. It's very hot. It's very hot. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Too hot from my perspective. So, so yeah. even yeah. that far south, it's that hot. Yes. Yeah. And because we're inland as well, so we're on that western side of the dividing range, it's hotter and we don't get, because of the range, then we don't get coastal air. So okay. we don't get the coastal sea breezes. And the, the nice part of that is it makes our, t uh, our climate a bit more stable than down in Melbourne. So I grew up in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. So most of my life has been down there and my horse keeping life has been down there, adjusting or um, keeping the horses on livery or I can't remember what, you call it in the US. Yeah, living, you have your we, we call it yeah, boarding. Kept somewhere. Yeah, boarding. Thank you, boarding. Boarding barns, yes. Yes. So a lot of my horsekeeping has been down there and it's a very different, very different up here climate-wise to Melbourne um, and down down in the outer, you know, the fringes of Melbourne, which is a very, a very horsey area because everyone from Melbourne who does keep their horses boarding has them on the fringes of Melbourne. Yeah. So it's very, very high-density horse area down there. Yeah, I guess we're quite dry here. Our only water source is rainfall. So we have tanks on the property. We, we have two dams, but they're fairly ineffectual. They leak, I think. We don't use the water for anything. It's for wildlife. It's fenced off from the horses. And, you know, we're pretty happy that it's for the wildlife to have. And so all our water is from rainfall. So we have about 130,000 litres of water storage here, uh, which is usually okay but last year and the year before, we did have to buy some water in. So a big truck turns up and pumps water into the tank. A big water truck pumps water into the tank for us. That's very yeah. different from what, what I would know. Yes. Your reality. Yeah. 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 It's quite different there. And much like, I know you spoke to Heather earlier this year. So we had the, the bushfires here in Victoria as well. And they were about 30 kilometres away from us. Um, to the east of us so we were also very fire impacted um, down here not quite as badly as as Heather was um, but we too had fully enacted our fire plan where we live and um, we plan to stay and defend I know Heather and um, her husband were leaving and the horses were staying but um, we've got a bit of a different property set out to them so we were yeah we were ready to defend so it can get very very dry and with that heat you know, that we can get up to, it, it really dries the landscape right out. So um, it's, an, it's an interesting landscape. And I guess um, in thinking where I am in the landscape, I don't know, um, Alex, if you or, or anyone uh, that follows the podcast knows about Ned Kelly, who is a very, very famous bush ranger in Australia's history. So he's, um, uh, yeah, very well known by many Australians. So where we live is kind of right in the heart of Ned Kelly country. So where he and his family were living in northeast Victoria and where he was bush ranging and, and rustling horses and, um, you know, robbing banks and getting arrested and eventually getting hanged in jail and stuff. Um, so we're, we're squarely in his, in his country. Okay. So climate change, if, if you're already this hot, and you've had to... <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. It, doesn't, summer... it doesn't take much to tip 
a landscape into, I mean, that's the whole, the Alan Savory work that I found so fascinating when, when he's talking about the desertification in Africa and the use of livestock to reverse that, that there they were thinking that livestock was the problem, that adding, that, yeah. uh, that the overgrazing was contributing to the destruction of the land. And lo and behold, if you change the way that you, that you rotate your, your livestock, you can use it to repair the land. But when you are talking about the kinds of temperatures that you are, it doesn't take a whole lot to tip that landscape into uh, uh, desert conditions. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, and he, yeah, it's true. And it's interesting that because the last so this year's been pretty wet so far, but the last two years were quite dry. And you know, it's really interesting the difference between our property and driving up the road past other properties where they weren't managing their grazing as we do here and they had paddocks that were just dirt like you know you know there was a seed bank in the soil but by all intensive purposes you looked at it and it's just dirt and we saw so much of that and we managed to keep grass cover here so you know we would look out and think geez we look dry but then as soon as you got in the car to go somewhere you'd be like actually we're doing really really well here yeah, by managing the grazing well. And I think that some interesting work being done here, there's, um, there's a guy called Peter Andrews who's been very active in Australia and he's got a book called Back from the Brink. Um, and he's done a lot of work on regenerative farming involving horses, actually. He used to manage um, a thoroughbred property for a, a very um, wealthy businessman and started experimenting with sort of water in the landscape and how to bring water back in the landscape. Um, really, really interesting work that he's done um, in a very dry area up in New South Wales. And, and that work's expanded and now they're teaching more and more people about how to manage land in that way. He was seen as a bit of a um, bit, bit out there at the time yes. when he started and yes. uh, more and more people are now embracing it you know as often is the way so yeah and I think the the other thing about Australia compared to some countries the work of Bruce Pascoe really talks about this uh, he's got a children's book called Young Dark Emu but he's got an adult's book called Dark Emu and uh, Bruce talks about when the first ex- uh, well he, He's, he's gone through the historical references of when the first explorers and settlers came to Australia uh, as part of colonisation and the insights that their, work, their writings show at that time about the negative impact that the introduction of hard-hooved animals had on the Australian landscape very, very, very rapidly within yeah. weeks and months to the way that the Aboriginal people were farming the landscape here and they were pretty much farming the landscape here. It's amazing to read um, Bruce's work. It sort of wasn't what I was taught about at school. It really, really eye-opening stuff. So Australia's soil and landscape evolved for thousands and thousands of years with soft-footed grazers. So our kangaroos and our yeah. wallabies are, are lightweight and soft-footed grazers. So the, you know, our, our landscape uh, wasn't so designed for the hard-hoofed animals. So to have the hard-hooved animals, the horses, the cattle, the sheep, the you know, um, on the land here, to do that well involves really careful, careful management. And so, um, you know, on, on our property, as I said earlier, we have a lot of native grasses, so grasses that would have been here pre-colonisation. 
which are great for horses because they're pretty low sugar, some di great diversity. We partly yes. bought the property because of the native pasture. I had had, prior to coming here, I had just did in a property in a place called the Yarra Valley and um, the pasture on the property was predominantly rye and clover and it sent one of my horses nuts. Like he was just, he had gone bonkers. Admittedly, that's what led me to positive reinforcement training because I got so desperate with him. It was kind of my yes. last resort of what to do. Yeah. But by the same token, at the time, I knew that this pasture was having this effect on him. But, you know, good, good boarding barns and adjustment is very hard to find. So yes. rock in yes. a hard place um, at the time. And so when we moved, we really looked for native pasture. And the difference on his temperament has is just worlds apart, just absolute worlds apart. The challenge we have with native pasture is it's very, very slow to recover from grazing, whereas some of the, the rise and the clovers and phalaris right. that we have here that are grown for sheep and cattle predominantly, they bounce back very, very quickly. But the native pasture takes, you know, um, a very long time to recover. So we have to manage that really, really carefully for it to stay and not to just get wiped out yes. and replaced by weed species. So it's, yeah, I think... It's, it's really easy in the Australian landscape to poorly manage hard-hooved animals. I hadn't even to, considered that. You know, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought, you know, you, you know in sort of uh, general vague terms that the introduction of, of our European and North American species was not a good thing for Australia and for the Australian wildlife. But I hadn't really considered the hard-hoofed nature of it and and of course the plants have not evolved to to be able to be tough enough to resist that yeah yeah so yeah and the soil yeah and the soil yeah huh so when you're that that raises many questions but because um, <laughs> you can look at it from the perspective of uh the native plants and wildlife and you can look at it from the perspective of how do I manage this horse that doesn't belong here but I want it here how do I manage it on this land and how do I use the native grasses which did not evolve to be eaten by this animal so how do I manage so that the grass can thrive the pasture can thrive and the horses can thrive so in your in your 13 paddocks how frequently then do you rotate the horses out and how long generally, and I know it's going to vary the season. Yeah. Roughly you have six paddocks per group of horses because you have two yeah. groups, right? Yeah. So we have uh, the shortest rotation that we'd probably have are our, what I call our back paddocks. So to further paint the picture for you of our landscape, um, we are a north northwest facing slope. And being in the southern hemisphere, um, our sun is coming from the north, oh, and okay. a lot of our prevailing weather and wind comes from the northwest. So when it gets windy up here and the hot, dry winds in summer, we really get hit by the hot, dry winds in summer. So we're on we're on a hill, a slope, and our top paddocks, um, which are some of our biggest paddocks, actually get the shortest grazing time because they're slower to recover because they get dried out so very quickly. So our, our top paddock, which we call the penthouse because it's got the best views of the property, what do we do? We gave it, the three horses were using it during the day only. So we would bring them into a smaller area at night for two weeks, that was it. And that paddock will now need to rest. It's resting now. 
we, it might get another graze in spring, depending on how it bounces back this year, because we've had um, higher rainfall so far than we've had the last couple of years, but it's just super slow to recover. So some of the others down the lower, lower in the landscape that have more topsoil and the grass does recover quickly. So they might, you know, the horses might be in them for maybe four weeks sometimes longer and we have a couple of paddocks that we use as kind of our sacrifice sacrifice areas right. one of the challenges we have being on a slope um, you know we try and incorporate as much of Jane and Stuart Myers work with the Equicentral system as we can we went when we moved up here we also went to a talk that Stuart gave um, before they moved back to the UK I'm sort of sad that they've gone because I really would like to go to another talk <laughs> uh, their work is amazing and yeah, one of the challenges we have is because we're on a slope to create a hard standing area involves earthworks and earthworks yeah. is money. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, yes. It's, it's a real challenge. So we've just, for the short term, we have these sacrifice paddocks that, are, that get, you know, we let get a bit trashed. They're paddocks that are right near the house, partly for convenience, but also then in fire season that creates a fire break because we don't have the grass growth okay. in those paddocks. So it creates a bit of a fire break. So, yeah, we have these sort of um, heavier use paddocks and then everything else we really try and conserve. So, yeah, the rotation is going to be quite quick, really, really quite quick. Right, right. Um, and we have – and then they can be resting for up to 12 months. We've got one – we've got two at the moment. One hasn't been grazed for over 12 months and the other one hasn't been grazed for maybe about nine months, I think. Mm. And the grass yeah. in them looks great now. But yes. it looks great, but it's taken a long time, you know, a long time. Yeah. And that, as well, this property historically was overgrazed. So we have um, a very low stocking rate. I think five horses on 30 acres, it's a very low you know, amount of stock per acre. The previous owners that we bought the property off, they had anywhere between five and 15 horses on at once. And then prior to them having, um, prior to this sort of 40 acres being subdivided off a bigger farm, it was sheep grazing. And so the land here has been pretty hammered um, by overgrazing for a long time. So we're now trying to, we're not maintaining what was good practice. We're trying to bring it back from, you know, right. the overgrazing it had had. It's amazing that you have as many native grasses and species as you do, given the, the overgrazing. Yeah, very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not very common. Like there's not a lot of horse properties that have um, native pasture uh, because, again, you know, mostly they've been sheep or cattle properties or cropping in the past. And because of that, they've got a lot of introduced species that actually aren't that great. You know, when you do allergy tests, they come up as being, you know, allergens for horses. Um, so we're very, you know, very lucky to find something that had the native pasture. So with all that overgrazing, how did the native pasture survive? So it's tough stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty resilient uh, stuff. And look, we do have patches of weeds that are coming through. Super interested listening to the, the podcast you did with Carol. Um, I followed her work for a while and um, I really, yeah, it was really heartening to hear what she had to say. I, it made me relax a little bit about the weeds we do have. So we're trying to encourage our native pasture to go to seed and to grow and spread and, um, you know, take back hold but some of it some of it's pretty tough stuff and it's it's sort of as we manage things better you can see it's already starting to just yeah. to, to spread yeah it's amazing it has you're right Alex it's amazing it survived yes. the hammering it got before we got here really and there, but there is very, a seed bank in the soil um, which helps you know so yes. you just step back and, and get out of the way 
these things will will come back. I mean, that's one of the I think one of the exciting things that you read in the, some of the rewilding projects. How you just step back and nature comes back. You're not doing anything, um, which can be really hard. Yeah, um, it's true. And I'm I'm looking out at at my back garden, which in normal suburban terms, I should cut the grass. But I'm seeing all these lovely grasses that are putting up seed heads. And I'm not going to cut the grass right now. I'm going to let let yep. those seeds uh, let them go, and you know all yep. day I, I I get to see various uh, I get to see who my neighbors are, which is very fun. You know we had um, yep. yesterday uh, we had a, a deer come up with her fawn who was still had spots on, and the fawn was was frolicking around in the backyard. We, you know, I love that. And the the day yep. before we had a, a mother turkey who came up with her six chicks and. Um, it's very distracting. Oh. I was trying to record. <laughs> I was I was doing a recording, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm going to pause here because I I have to watch the turkey instead. <laughs> so if you know, in terms of advice, so you know, the whole premise of the Horses for Future podcast is that we can make a difference. And the question always is, how? You know, how do we put those words into action? You were affected by the fires, so you are experiencing climate change at its worst. And I can't, I cannot, I cannot wrap my mind around that kind of fire, even though I've been, I was out in California, not last year, but when I was out there, it was the year before, when the fires were hitting, and we were 90 miles north of one of the fires. And you could, uh, the people in, that I was staying with woke up early because they could smell the smoke. And we had a very tense day because there were people who were attending the clinic who had horses that were needing to be evacuated back home. And, you know, they, mm-hmm. they had to rely on their, their friends and family to get their horses out, which thankfully they did. But even so, we were in, we were right on the coast. We were in a fairly green area. And for somebody like myself who lives on the East Coast, which is very wet and very green, it's just hard to imagine fires like the fires that hit Australia. And then it's hard to imagine what it must be like now as the land is recovering so as you if you drove through some of the uh areas that were hit by the fire what would it look like now i think it's 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 really variable so you know i think (laughs) the most used word of 2020 in Australia could be unprecedented, I think. Yes. <laughs> between the fire between the fires and COVID. Right, right. I, <laughs> I think that's probably true worldwide. Yes. <laughs> unprecedented. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, it, it really varies, I think. And the footage that I've seen, uh, you know, it's a shame actually because um I'd planned to go and do some driving around some of the fire affected areas, like the 
just the week that I went into lockdown because I've got a compromised immune system. So I've actually been at home since March sometime. I've only left here once and that was to have my flu wow. injection. Um, I've been here. I'm very happy. We have 40 beautiful acres to play. Yes. Um, but, but I was really disappointed to not get out and to drive around some of the fire affected areas and see with my own eyes how it was bouncing back. But the footage and the images that I've seen um, because I work in biodiversity, so this is quite relevant for my work is um, it's very variable how it's coming back. Some areas are recovering well, but some areas were burnt so hot and ha it hasn't been long enough since their last fire for the recovery of that to take hold well enough for it to withstand this most recent fire. Mm. So there's actually some work being done to do some reseeding of particular big tree species. Um, the intervals between fire were just too short for those massive sort of big eucalypt tree, forest tree species to have developed a seed bank and for the seed bank to have then survived and withstood oh. the fire. So there's actually some active seed collecting happening in some areas and then some, um, it has to be done at a very specific time uh, with, to do with, this is in often areas that get, do get snow. So we do get snow in um, in our mountainous, highest mountainous areas in Victoria over winter. Yeah. So right now there are there is snow. And so they're having to really time that. Um, so, yes, yeah, some areas you would drive into and think it was bouncing back well. Others, not so much. Some of the areas that got burnt, a big, a big problem post-fire is then when you, you have a very fire-affected landscape and you get big rain. I mean, big rain yes. sounds lovely after fire. No, but the runoff you that the, you get from... Yeah, yeah. Get the landslides. And yeah, landslides and the runoff into waterways. So yes. one of the operations that the, the government was doing and the scientific uh, institutions were doing sort of shortly after the fire was they were doing extractions of freshwater animal species to have insurance populations in captivity in case these areas, you know, of, of particularly threatened species, right. in case right. their habitat got just decimated with the rain, washing, you know, so much topsoil and debris and um, into oh. the water. So I think now to drive around, some areas will look great and some areas will look, you know, there'll be scars on the landscape for, for a long time from the fires. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's um, you know, it's funny actually, Alex, I listened to Heather's um, conversation with you not very long ago. And, you know, Heather's in New South Wales, far from here, you know, Heather is really far from here in Coffs Harbour. Her area is is much more tropical than we are. We're, we're quite much drier down here than where Heather is. And listening to her talk to you in that, you know, in that time through the fires, it just all came back mm. to me. You know, the, the, the stress here over summer that we have um, uh, in Victoria, we have an, an app on our phones called the Vic Emergency app and you set it up so that, you know, you have watch zones and whenever there's a fire or you can set it up for things like floods too, which we do have sometimes as well, it beeps at you. And I tell you what, when I was in the office for work and everyone's phone was just going beep, 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 across the office, it was giving me almost Tourette's like, and you know, not to offend anyone with Tourette's, but the, the, the mental health impact of that going off and that we will have this coming summer. And I think for a lot of people in Australia, I think Christmas and New Year's is going to be very, very triggering time for people because of the fires last time. And anyone who'd been through Black Saturday here in Victoria in 2009, where over 200 people died 
um, was just horrific. These fires would have been very triggering for those people too. So, you know, the, the impact of climate change has, has such a, a, a flow on effect throughout whole lives. And, and sometimes the links for people seem too tenuous that they can't connect right. the dots. But um, I think, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's very impactful on so much of the way that we live in and our mental health. Yeah. And then you add in that the effect of the coronavirus. So you've got the whole stacking. It's like the, you know, the, they talk about stacking in training where you have a, a dog yeah. that is afraid of men with beards, but he's sort of okay. And, he, and, but he's also afraid of hats and he's afraid of umbrellas and each one of those by itself is okay. But you get a man the beard wearing a hat holding an umbrella and the dog attacks it so you yeah. know, you've got the the stacking so now you've got the stress of the fire yeah. plus all of the stress of the lockdown and the coronavirus and i don't know how yeah. how severely australia has been hit it doesn't sound as though you've had quite the intensity of the numbers that we had here in New York State, which was the epicenter. No. And, and right now, of course, we're having a surge across the country. So who knows what's going to happen? And uh, I gather you're having okay. another spike. So well, we are in Victoria. We're the only state so far that's having, that's having another surge. So the other states have closed their borders to us <laughs> as of, I think, They're yesterday <laughs> or last night. Yeah, we're having another surge here. Oh, the fire affected communities, I, my heart goes out to them because, you know, they, they went through fire and a lot of these communities are so dependent on tourism oh, for yes. their, you know, their economic, yes. you know, yes. stability. And so they went through the fires in one of their busiest times. It's usually busy times for a lot of these places. Yeah. And then there were these sort of real uh, campaigns and pushes to try and get people back there supporting these communities and everyone was on board and you know, there was like a bring an esky campaign, um, you know, take your esky and buy from the producers and support everyone. And then COVID hit. And, you know, now they're like these, these communities and uh, these people trying to rebuild their, their lives, you know, thankfully these fires, there wasn't the huge loss of life that we saw in Black Saturday, but we still did lose some people. Um, but there was a loss of assets, uh, you know, and infrastructure and the wildlife, the, the, impact on biodiversity these fires has been phenomenal and so for people who are trying to recover from that and oh yeah the, the layering as you say that the trigger stacking that COVID yeah. has added yeah I, you know I must say the, yeah, it's funny when we reflect and I think yeah we had fog here all day yesterday and I stop and I think about that and I think wow if this was February that just would have been smoke and February wasn't that long ago, <laughs> like, but it's because of what's happened this year. It just yeah. seems like so, so far away, time and space. So, yeah, it's, yeah. So what can we I'm do to, forward to, this fire to be, to shift to that focus on what can we do? So if we were going to get things right, what are some of the things that as horse people, we could be doing or what are some of the behavior changes since you know behavior change uh, that's that's really what we need to do what are some of the behavior yeah. changes or how can we what is it that you know that from your your work that can help people achieve those changes 
I'm going to stop us here. I love how Sarah answered this question, but I'm going to make you wait. We're about halfway through our conversation, and since this marks a shift in topics, it's a good place to stop. If you want to learn more about permaculture and the other topics that Sarah's talked about, she sent me a list of resources. I'll have them posted in the show notes. So go to sequestercarbon.com for those resources. The coronavirus has had many impacts on our lives, some devastating, some good. In the good column, I'm learning how to give stay-at-home clinics. I can't travel as I normally would to my clinic groups, so I'm reinventing the way I give clinics. I've been giving them online, and I'm discovering that I love virtual clinics. If the virus disappeared tomorrow, I would still continue to include these virtual clinics in my schedule. They're proving to be a great way for people to learn, and they're a lot of fun. So I have three of these clinics scheduled in August. You can go to my website, theclickercenter.com, for more information on them. These clinics are not set up like the webinars so many of us are familiar with. The group size is kept small, so everyone can actively participate. And when I say actively participate, I really do mean that. So if you're interested, do visit my website. And I would suggest signing up early to reserve your spot because, again, we do keep the group sizes really small. So I think that's all the announcements for this week. Thank you again for listening. And next time, we'll have part two of this conversation with Sarah Nichols. Remember, horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis.